Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and this is our Wednesday show, where we niche down into a single topic, think about a question, and unpack the rest. This week, we're asking, how has the great resignation changed the way startups hire? Somehow, I don't think we've sat down and dedicated an entire episode to this conversation, but it's been a talking point in nearly every single call I have with founders and same with Alex Wilhelm, who's here today to talk it through. Alex, hello. And how are you feeling about work these days? Well, apparently I should be quitting given the topic of the conversation. Don't tell my boss that, but apparently it's the the new jam. I've been back at TC for more than two years now. Maybe I should like, you know. I'm kidding. I'm not going anywhere. There's nothing else I want to do. But like, it is the season for leaving. Uh, kind of everywhere it feels, Natasha. 100%. Like, I feel kind of left out. A lot of my friends left their companies almost a year ago this month. And I feel like they were early. And But, but they all were like having these conversations about salary, negotiation, empowerment. And the great resignation does impact all of us, even the ones that aren't planning on going anywhere. Um, And that's the really the big reason why we wanted to talk about it. It's pretty unavoidable at this point. And today we're going to spend time, I guess, going through the numbers on what the great resignation is actually looking like in terms of people who have quit, people who are making more money than they were before and and who's being left out of that conversation. Then we'll go into a lot of ours. So we'll talk about recruitment, retention, um, rinsing and repeating, and as well as kind of like experiments we're seeing in the space and what happens when the great resignation ends. So if this is something that you've been thinking about, but haven't spent time really getting sharper on it, this is the episode for you. And especially if you care about this question in a startup context, because Natasha is right. This applies to all workers and it seems like all industries to a degree. But we care most, of course, about high growth startups. And that is one of the epicenters, I think, of the great resignation. And it kind of more broadly, Natasha, the talent crunch as it's kind of bandied about. And also, you know, it's always great when tech is as like meme worthy and absurd and capital rich as it is, because it just gives us really fun anecdotes, which we'll get into. But let's start with, I guess, how many people have been quitting recently? Alex, you pulled up some data for us. What's quit rates looking like these days? Yeah, really high, turns out, much higher than I thought. So I was pulling through some data. It appears that the number of quits in the United States, which is the actual way to phrase that, I believe, and I love it edged a little bit down to about 4.3 million in December of last year. That's still way up towards the the absolute ceiling of those numbers. I think the all-time record was 4.5 million in November. Now, what does that mean? How many people? So in percentage terms, to make that a little bit more clear, the quit rate was 3.5% in December. Here's the thing. It was 3.7% in January. And now if my understanding of this is 3.7% of people leaving their job in a particular month is a lot. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of churn, given that most people don't quit their job in a particular month to see that many in any 30-day period. Shocking. So people are leaving. And uh, Natasha, I've seen help wanted signs and I think every business within walking distance of my house at least. Oh my God, totally. It, it is not just a tech issue to your point. It is everywhere. And I think what we're seeing with the number of quits out there too, is that companies as a result are racing to fill in roles, put a lot of money towards it and budgets are changing. The big place we get to after we realize that a lot of people are leaving is like the why and is it remote? Is that it? Or is there other kind of non-obvious ones? I, remote's been two years long. So that's why I'm always still confused when people are like distributed work is the reason behind the great resignation. Yeah, I think a lot of people just realized that their life had been going a certain way for a long period of time and it didn't have to be that way. 
Like if, if you just are raised in a society in which you have to commute, you have to live near where you work, and that's kind of the main determination of where you live and what culture and what food there is and what people you get to see and all that, and you have to spend your money and time and stress and sanity and you know driving, and then suddenly that all just fades away and you're at home just hanging out with yourself, your partner, your family, your pets, whatever. Maybe you're some roommates, whatever you got. And then I think you just rethink things and you're like, what the hell am I doing? What actually matters? And so to me, the great resignation began with the great shock of sitting at home with your thoughts. And so we could talk about Natasha, you know, inflation versus minimum wage and how that's impacting different bands of employment and compensation expectations. Or, you know, yes, you can be remote, but does that mean you have more options? You know, there's, there's many factors. But to me, I think psychologically, I think we all just kind of looked at the way we were doing things. And we're like, that's stupid. I'm not going to do that anymore. And that is the root of where we are today. I couldn't agree more with that. Like very well said. And it's kind of a weird place to be in when you are a journalist whose job really depends on meeting people, bonding with people and schmoozing to an extent and doing that all remotely and learning that it's okay and you can do your job remotely was also, I think, another realization within this resignation. Like before there was like really no counterpoint or proof. It was kind of like Friday, stay at home. Enjoy yeah, but, that. <laughs> but, but, but let's be real. I, I had some friends who had Friday work at home jobs. And it wasn't a lot of working at home going on Friday. But now that we're all remote, I feel like we're all actually very accustomed to it now. And then here's the thing. People wanted people to come back to the office. People didn't want to go. Great resignation. People wanted to be paid the same amount of money, but live in a lower cost of living area. Some employers said no great resignation. People decided to change what they do because what they were doing sucked. Like think about the the hospitality industry in the United States, for example, like it's, it's hard to hire servers and wait staff and so forth because people decided they didn't want to do that anymore. Now this all boils down to the startup world. You are developer talent is now global, if you will. Sales talent's in high demand. Operational talent is scarce. Every city is a startup hub. Every geography in the U.S., every continent in the whole freaking world is trying to build tech at the same time. So the great resignation is kind of meeting this moment of, of, of burning demand. And I, you know, people are struggling. Let's take the last month out of the equation. So many startups are soaring and, and are needing a lot of people to help them meet the demand that they've found during the pandemic. And I think that's where we saw kind of a hopping situation happen where they added 1000 employees in a year. Um, the great resignation really, I mean, people were able to find companies like a hopping, like a high growth startup that's going to hire you and pay you super well and make you feel like you're joining a rocket ship, which is the promise of startups in a way that we just haven't seen before. So a lot of my friends got more selfish in the best ways. They were like, I'm going to prioritize money right now. I'm going to prioritize mission and money right now because I can. And that's like also a great thing to see. I just want to point out that there's someone listening to this show right now who's like, man, back in my day, people stayed at their jobs. Yeah, that's a great way to get paid less. You know, <laughs> also corporations have absolutely precisely and exactly 0% loyalty to their employees when they don't want them anymore. So I think also part of this, Natasha, is kind of what you said. People just were like, wait a minute, eh, F that. And I, I'm trading my labor for money. It's not an emotional transaction. It's a business deal. So let's go out and make a new one. Yeah. Why not? I want to spend some time talking about like what founders have been telling us, because I think that has come up so naturally during every conversation. Every conversation. Oh, my God. I, I mean, I, I know money is obviously the big one and capital and new fundraisers have always been used to hire as well as even funding around stories. So no, nothing new there. But I think just like the sheer focus on trying to pitch yourself not just as one thing. You're not just going to get a lot of money if you join me. You're going to get money mission 
upskilling. Your, your life is going to change if you join my company is the new pitch. And that feels different. I will paint your toenails. I yeah. will buy you new <laughs> curtains. I will come over and groom your dog. Please come work for us. Exactly. And, and, and it feels frantic. I think we've seen a lot of companies not shy away from the fact that they need to hire a lot of people. But that may change, too. Like, I, I don't know, like, are you hearing people start to get more comfortable addressing the fact that maybe a contractor or part time work could be a reasonable way to grow? It, it's hard time. to get people to admit that on the record because it implies that they're unable to attract the right talent for their startup, which makes them seem slightly less perfect and therefore probably not worth a 100x ARR multiple. So no, but I am hearing a lot of people talking about the issue of hiring and, and finding the right people. And that's where kind of like the VC world creeps into this conversation because it does feel like people talk about their VCs as capital sources, but no one ever compliments their VC on the term sheet. But I have heard a consistent theme of compliments or notes about people. Because I ask founders, I'm like, all right, cool. You know, why did you pick Tiger? And they're yeah. like, well, they know everybody and they helped us hire a CFO. And I'm like, oh, that's actually value add. But not just CFOs. I mean, think about like if you're Andreessen, right, to pick a firm with a lot of employees, they have a lot of uh, spokes in their hub. So they touch a lot of different areas and can probably help you build your own very positive whisper network to bring talent in. And if you can hire the right people, you can work a lot faster and better. And that leads to growth, which is what everyone wants. I think VCs are a hundred percent. The, the new recruiters, I think I saw on the show notes that you put in, like, it feels like their job, the moment the capital is wired is how do we connect you to talent and how do we help you message your talent? I actually had a similar conversation with the founder about Tiger and they were saying the Tiger will always win against every top tier firm. Founders also have options now. So if they can choose a VC who's not going to invest in their competitor, who's going to help them hire all of their executive talent and is going to give them great deal, uh, sorry, a great valuation, um, why not go? that way. We also see startups being created to kind of make recruiting easier and they're booming as well. Yeah, actually, well, I mean, let's talk about kind of the mix between the two things, which is um, Arlen Hamilton is putting together, she's a venture capitalist, we had her on the show. Wow. We had her on the show long enough ago that it was back in the old TC office, I just realized. Oh, We should have Arlen back on the show. It's been, it's time. We Anyways, should. Uh, Natasha, she's putting together some sort of fractional shared labor pool for early stage companies kind of to alleviate this precise issue that we're talking about. Yeah, definitely. So I think she's taking a lot of what we saw with like the freelance economy as shown by Upwork and Fiverr and is applying it to ops roles in tech. So she created Runner. It's raised about $1.5 million in seed funding from Charles of Precursor and a few other prominent firms. Its whole pitch is we're going to help early stage startup founders hire part-time flexible work to build out their ops team, whether that's an executive assistant, whether that's a COO, all those roles she wants to kind of help connect to people. And so really, it's a recruiting company. And I, I was really interested. Obviously, it fits into what we're talking about because it's a VC starting a recruiting company that's obviously going to work with her portfolio companies, but is addressing what she says is the second question she gets after capital, which is how to hire. And I think it really showed at least me that we're seeing employers slash founders change their mind on what it means to scale right now. They don't just yeah. need a COO to plug and play. They can do a part-time COO. And that's a really interesting concept if we think about it. Well, if you're a small company, you may not need a full-time executive assistant for your CEO. You may need a person who probably has 15 hours a week. So you cut that up into a couple people. It's suddenly affordable. Everyone's happy. Another dynamic here, Natasha, that I forgot to put into the notes, but I want to bring up at this juncture is just straight comp, just, just money. And I think that in the older days, it was easier to go to a, a large tech company, pick a name, Oracle, and be like, hi, listen, I know you're a PM at Oracle. Your, your life is hard. You work for Oracle. 
<laughs> do you want do you want to come work for my cool startup? You won't make quite as much money, but we'll throw some stock in there and you get to kind of have control over your life and destiny. Since then, that feels like a very 2013 conversation, if you will. Since then, big tech companies have been ratcheting up the comp. Ooh. And they have been, I mean, we both know this because we have friends that work for like every big tech company. And uh, uh, it's harder to go to someone where, you know, making 400 at Google and be like, hey, here's what you should do. Stop making 400 at Google in cash and stock and all the other stuff that you get. You come work for 120 at my startup and we'll give you eight shares. Like it's tough. There's only so much equity at an early stage company. And if employees cost more, you have to dig deeper and deeper into your options pool to make it kind of math out. That's tough. And that to me is, is, is really where like, salesmanship comes in like how good is your mission and culture really and can you take that and actually use it as a way to combat a lack of resources compared to alphabet and amazon and microsoft and so forth oh totally i mean and this really is us talking about like the recruitment portion of how things have changed recruitment and a lot of founders have told me that like we'll even tell you in that first interview that we're not going to ever pay you as much as a facebook and we're not going to lie or pretend that you'll, you'll be making as much as one and that it's also helped weed people out in some ways. If you are the kind of founder that wants to recruit people for your mission and not try and bait them with money, which isn't a bad thing. I think everyone comes from a different life situation. Um, yeah, money is good. Is, like, yeah, money is great. <laughs> if, if someone has too much money and doesn't want it, um, put it into a suitcase and email it to wherever our office is and uh, we'll buy lunch. Actually, don't, don't do that, to be clear. That's unethical. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying that in general, I like money. My fr a friend of a friend who works at Facebook joined Facebook or Meta, sorry. And we asked them, how do you, how do you like working at Meta? The first thing he said was, well, the compensation's great. And just kind of like walked away. And I was like, one, I'll, that's a lot. <laughs> Two, like fair. I feel like that's the sentiment we see all across the board. And it's, it's one that I joke a lot about is, is her reaction, but also one that like, I, I think just like sh shows that we're in just a new era of what it means to join a company. You're not joining a company um, because it's your life's purpose. You are joining a company because it's a job that you will do, but your life is bigger than where you work. Like people used to live in San Francisco only to work. Now when you're in SF, people are like, why? Because it's not for work. And that's kind of crazy to experience as well. So on the recruiting front, though, we know people are looking to VCs for help. We know things are very, very expensive. We know that CEOs and their ability to, you know, kind of bring talent in the door, super important. Talk to me about retention and what you're hearing from kind of the ed tech benefit side of things. You mentioned upskilling earlier, so I'm presuming that that's a, a lever. Huge one. I think in the past, retention was obviously something people tracked, but it wasn't a metric of success or really something people viewed as like, how do we find a return of investment in upskilling tools? Now that's all changing. I mean, it is like the top priority as much as like profitability is for some companies is like, can we show our investors that we're able to keep talent on an ongoing basis? I remember Duolingo like notoriously in their S1 said like they only lost like 3% of people. And, and that was a flex, but I, I, I would, I, I will not be surprised if retention becomes statistic. We start to see more and more just to kind of give you a snapshot of how much attention is being paid toward it. It reminds me of one of my favorite business stories. Oh gosh, I don't remember who the CEO of Domino's was at the time. Someone was brought on to help kind of tune up Domino's pizza. This was way before the current era of Domino's share price appreciation and all that. And he was like, well, what's our yearly turnover for in-store workers? And it turned out it was over a hundred percent. They were cycling through their entire staff more than once a year on the front lines. And if you do that, what do you lose? You lose institutional knowledge, you lose camaraderie, you lose the ability to promote from within. And to be clear, 
if you're having over 100% retention, you're not doing a great job with those things anyways. But you can't at that point because that's how bad it is. That's why 2% is so impressive. Dakwa, which is built by the Wanderlust Group, it's a Rhode Island-based technology oh, startup. Oh, we love to see it. <laughs> uh, I think they, they always brag to me in our calls about uh, their employee retention, if I have my notes correctly. So it, it is a thing. And it shows that people don't leave. And that's great because recruiting and recruiters, as we know, and we've learned from some recent pieces, are expensive and in high demand. Expensive and high demand and also kind of changing their minds on who to serve. We talked about free agency a few weeks ago, and that's all about helping tech workers getting their own agent and their own kind of in-house recruiter for themselves being the house. (laughs) And I kind of loved seeing that concept. And so I feel like no one really agrees on the best way to recruit or retain right now. And that is like a data point in and of itself is that like everyone's kind of trying to beef up their own side. Employees, though, seem to kind of be the center person that is benefiting. Recruiters are in high demand. There's been a couple of pieces that I've read that discussed how like people are struggling to recruit recruiters, which is like, is there a better sign of the times than that? I'm struggling to think of a better indicator for how broken things are. It's probably a really not a fun time to be a recruiter. If I was a recruiter, I would go on the employee side. (laughs) I would not go on the employer side. So you would go on the free agency route and represent individual talent. I think so. I mean, I feel like I can't imagine it being hard to represent a head of product from Shopify. That, well, no, that, that, that would be that like does making, itself. And Natasha Mascarenas, however, that would be a little harder. <laughs> well, no, no one knows the agents' names of the, the NBA players, right? But they have enormous clout because they represent, insert star, you know, if you're Steph Curry's agent, it doesn't matter if your name's, you know, Billy Bob, whatever. Like, yeah. you represent that person, ergo, you matter. You know, you get to be in the room. I think it'd be a fun job. I think it would be strange, though, if it's just extracting value from companies. But at the same time, isn't that what we're supposed to do as employees? So much to say about capitalism, the incentives, and how venture capital fits into all of it, which I think is like where every Wednesday conversation goes these days, yeah. well, which I love sense, about we're, we're talking about... <laughs> Essentially, a a particular dynamic inside of the economic model of startups and how it plugs into the larger economy. And as things change in the in the macro picture, of course, things change in the micro picture. And that's why we're here. Um, Here, A question that I had, Natasha, is is, is what about VCs who don't do recruiting help? Does that become like a dividing line in like venture capital deal access? Because the firms that we do talk about being super aggressive do bring this kind of help. And I wonder if if they realize that to move fast, you, ha- you can't just offer a good term sheet today. You have to offer a good term sheet today and also promise to help fill the spend that the budget will bring. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a story we've been seeing for so long now, ever since like the phrase like VCs need to be more than just a bank has come around. Services. Like, VCs- yeah, VC services. Um, they, they, like, I feel like VCs have been prepping for it. So I don't think solo capitalists will be surprised by the fact that they can't keep up with a tiger who I think quite literally has thrown millions at single companies to help them with their recruiting budgets. So I don't think that it, they should. But I do think a side effect we'll see is maybe more interest in founders, early stage founders, bringing on party rounds. Like we'll see the need to have 100 investors in your first round with smaller checks more than the single solo capitalist who may have been enough and could have been a great value add, but like, why not spread your name wider across more people who can shout your praise in their networks? It's kind of like, we know you're not going to help us hire our next CFO, but if you could keep tweeting about us and keep being kind of on our team, we expect the magic to come back in some way. 
It's amazing how much the old venture rules have been turned around. Like we used to say, like, don't raise money from the same investor two rounds in a row because mm. it shows that you couldn't find a new, new investor. It's a negative signal. Now, if you don't raise capital from your last lead investor, what went wrong with that deal? Why didn't they want to double oh my down? God, it's yeah. it's an, an inversion of things. And the same way, party rounds used to be this idea that like, oh, you couldn't find a lead investor. No one has enough allocation to really care about your company. A party round is a mess waiting to happen. And more like a party foul. And now oh, you're no. like, party round, great. More people, promotion, bigger network, easier to hire. It's funny how that, how things, when, when there's more money in the space and a tighter labor market, the old rules turns out weren't rules. They were just ways to ensure long-term venture capital returns. Yes. I think like, it's kind of like this conversation we talk about like community. Is it community or is it just capitalism? And I do, <laughs> I do still believe my theory of like, it's community because in, eventually that community or that party round are just spreading yourself throughout more and more channels of low customer acquisition costs when it comes to hiring is yeah. a smart thing to do if you're a founder in 2022 and you're, you're not as well capitalized as the unicorn in your category or as the big tech company in your category. Oh my gosh. Remember when unicorn was a way that people had tried to like build brand cred to get the ability to hire more? Yeah. Now it's like, you're a unicorn. How are you going to deliver on that, bud? Yeah. Now <laughs> there's another inversion. It went from being like, oh my gosh, they're the CEO of a unicorn company. Now I'm like, oh my gosh, they have 3 million in ARR, a $2 billion valuation, and they have really shitty gross margins and they're growing at 60% per year. They're doomed. <laughs> like, like you're right. Yeah. Now we just kind of look for the weaknesses. Um, okay. Last thing for me on this topic is, is the following. What are the benefits for individual workers from this? Because it does seem you can extract a little more comp. You have a little more flexibility now in terms of where you work. And you can kind of, you know, argue like, yes, I'm going to work from Denver and not Columbus or whatever, you know? Yeah. But like, what else can employees do to like ensure that this moment of them having the more ascendant hand end up benefiting them? And it's not just flex spin for your HSA. Like there's gotta be something else that we, is this how we really get to back to like a good work-life balance? I think like the empowerment is something we shouldn't undermine. And it's something that I've been kind of undermining. I think I told someone this and they were like, I think it's just cause all your friends are in their mid twenties. And I don't think that's true. Like I think that yes, my friends in their mid twenties are learning how to be more empowered at work. But my dad, who has worked at the same company for over a decade, he's not going back into the office. And like, I think seeing people who traditionally <laughs> weren't feeling empowered, starting to feel empowered is something that isn't going to go away. Think about it. Like work doesn't have to be what you define yourself by. It can be like the third data point about you. It can not be a data point about you at all. Um, I don't know what we would do if that was the case. Yeah, I'm, I'm like third data point. What are the first two? I know. Like, what, do I have anything interesting about myself? Well, Sometimes I don't wear shirts. <laughs> That's just a character flaw. I don't know. Like, fuck I, it. Like, it it's, kind of, it's kind of cool, though, to see people like think about like, I can use my work to fuel my side hobby or like I can become a creator and like start thinking of it in that way. And so I don't know. I think like the takeaway for people is like you can be selfish again. Not might not see an immediate benefit in that, but like that is a benefit. You aren't going to be stupidly loyal to your company anymore. Yeah. Also, I think that some of the old excuses don't really work. Like in companies are like, oh, we can't offer you more stock because the options pool is limited. Well, that sounds like a company problem to me. Go talk to the board, get some more options in the pool. Like, do you want to hire me or not? The, like the, the, the old kind of BS walls that were put up to prevent employees from having a greater stake in a company's success to me, to have to go away if there's going to be proper retention and proper hiring. And you know what? I would be much more likely to go work for a company that was uh, carving off a larger slice of its equity to, to 
keep employees that were high quality than a company that was trying to, you know, constrain that and enrich their backers. But that's my take because uh, I'm a capitalist, but a bad one. You're a capitalist. I'm an emotional one. And I think like it kind of creates this like perfect duo to be talking about the great resignation right now, because it really does, even though it feels like it's a lot about like dollar signs and like people leaving and kind of throwing the middle finger in the air. It's kind of it's also like people are taking so much for themselves again. And that like kind of gives me goosebumps. OK, yeah. I'll say it. <laughs> Startup employees are people, too. You deserve a good life. And uh, and uh, we appreciate all the work that you do because OSB does nothing to write about. <laughs> so to the power of the employee, we love to keep it on that wavelength, as always on this show. Alex, thank you so much for talking through, I guess, the impacts of the great resignation and what's going to stay. To everyone else, we will be back online Thursday at 10 a.m. PT, 1 p.m. ET on Hopin. We're going to be recording our classic Friday show, but live. So join us and ask us some questions while you're at it. Why not? And for those of you who just want to listen to us on the podcast and don't want to see our faces, we won't be offended. Listen to us Friday, wherever you find podcasts.